Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. It is a delight to be back in the pulpit with you all after being absent. And I look forward to entering this new section of Luke. Um, you'll find the text written on the back of the notes in the bulletin if you don't have a Bible. I'd like to begin by reading our text, and then we'll dive in. Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now, tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Lord God, as we study this passage, uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to see the glory, the wisdom, the control, the strength of your Son, and help us to see the wickedness at work in these leaders of Israel, and help us not to imitate it, but that we might Properly confess the authority of your Son, not challenging you. Lord, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. and Unite our hearts to fear your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may remember about four or five years ago when we were studying the book of Zechariah, uh, the penultimate book of the Old Testament. In the final section of Zechariah, there was a prophecy concerning our Lord. And that, the Lord, that God told Zechariah to get the gear, the accoutrement of a shepherd, and to act out a drama. And I just want to read um, two verses from Zechariah 11. Zechariah writes, I became the shepherd of the flock doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. Well, I believe in Luke chapter 20, that is what we see. I've titled this entire section, and really chapters 20 and 21 form one section. I'll show you that in a minute. But most of the action is confined to chapter 20, where there will be six conflicts in the temple. Six conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. We are witnessing the first conflict today. Three of those six conflicts are initiated by Jesus' enemies. This one is initiated by them, where they ask, by what authority? In verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. They feared the people, so they watched him, sent spies, pretending to be sincere, and those spies say, Teacher, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They're trying to trap him. And then the Sadducees come in, Asking a bogus question about a fictitious woman married to seven brothers. That's their three attempts to, to trap Jesus. That's their initiative. But Jesus, on his end, launches into three full-scale attacks on them. 
Immediately following our text this morning, he tells the story of the vineyard tenants who kill the son, and, and they understand. Look at verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Yeah, Jesus launched his own attack. And then Jesus will ask them in verse 41. He said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He's challenging these religious experts who are supposed to know the Torah inside and out. Just who do you think, who do you say the Christ is? And then finally... In verse 45, he launches into his final assault on them. And in the hearing, and you get the sense that Luke puts this here as a culminative final statement. In the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for a pretense Make long praise, prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And the result of this conflict in the temple is the utter, complete, and total defeat of Jesus' enemies. You see it clearly in verse 40. They no longer dared to ask him any question. So three times in three different ploys, they come and try to trip him up, try to trap him. By what authority? Should we pay taxes? There is this lady married to seven brothers. And in every instance, he not only answers them, but he defeats them, and they, they just don't even dare talk to him. So now the only recourse left to them is simply form a mob and lynch him. It's interesting. The different Gospels focus on different events in what we call the Passion Week, the week Jesus spent in Jerusalem prior to the cross. This is probably Tuesday, as much as we call Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry was most likely on a Monday. And Luke doesn't give us a record of day by day. And you notice verse one of our section, one day. Tuesday, maybe? Wednesday? Thursday? Friday morning? I don't know. One of those days. And I said this is a section because look at the end of chapter 21. We get that literary bookend that lets us know the author has made a section when he begins the section and ends the section on a similar note. It's called Inclusio. Verse 47, and every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And what takes place in chapter 21 is Jesus' denunciation of the temple of Jerusalem's prediction of its destruction and speaking about a second return. So chapters 20 and 21 is the temple conflict. Jesus has just cleared the temple. It's a bold and audacious move. He, he drives everyone out, and then he sets up shop in it. And from dawn till dusk, all day long, Jesus is possessing the temple. He's teaching in it, and there's crowds gathering and these conflicts take place in the temple. And just as Zechariah prophesied that this shepherd would fight the false shepherd, so we see Jesus do that here. They have nothing to say. They have no real complaint. They are silenced. They are humiliated. They are soundly defeated. 
And that's what Luke wants us to see. The Lord has come to his house. He has reformed Israel's worship. He is teaching truly and rightly. And the religious leaders and the elders hate it. That's what we're seeing in this section, Luke chapter 20. And so this morning, we're going to focus on that first temple conflict. The challenge over Jesus' authority. His authority is challenged. So let's dive in. We're going to look at this in three points. Two challenging questions, then the leader's dilemma, and then Jesus' refusal to answer. So let's look at two challenging questions, verses 1 through 4. On one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will ask you a question also. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So Luke begins, and remember he's beginning an entire two-chapter section of Jesus teaching the temple, giving us the setting. And this is wonderful. What does Jesus Messiah do when he enters? He's entered in being heralded as Israel's messianic and Davidic king. And like the righteous kings of the Davidic land before him, he goes and he reforms Israel's worship in the temple. He drives out the money changers. He drives out those selling goods who are preying on his people. And in its place, he puts teaching and proclaiming of the gospel. Because, as as we've said all along in Luke, Jesus is first and foremost a preacher and teacher. If you go all the way back to Luke chapter 4, Jesus' commission recites Isaiah, the Lord has appointed me to proclaim, to announce good news to captives. That's what Jesus has been doing. The miracles confirm his message, but first and foremost, Jesus is a messenger. He's a teacher. He's a prophet. That's exactly what he's doing in the temple. And great crowds are coming to him. And we saw even last time we were here, this division between the leadership of Israel who hate him and the people. Look at verse 48 of chapter 19. They did not find anything they could do for all The people were hanging on his words. Very similar to the end of 21. Early in the morning, verse 38, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So Jesus has driven out those who have corrupted the temple and its worship and its place, his teaching, is the good news of the gospel. Jesus has been doing this throughout his entire ministry and great crowds of the people are coming and gathering and hearing and hanging on his every word. Yet the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, they don't like this. The temple was run by the priests. And so Jesus has just upset the pattern, the practice of the temple for who knows how far back. In John's gospel, Jesus also cleanses the temple in the first year of his ministry. So for at least the last three years, this has been taking place. It's got to be rather embarrassing when you're in charge of the temple, when you're the, the chief priests and the elders, the, 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 the primary central geographic building of Israel's worship, and in comes this carpenter and turns everything on his head and denounces everything that's being done. The people flock to him. They have to be very embarrassed and indignant. And so they're sly. They're sly, at least they think they are. This group of men that are elsewhere, we refer to them as the Sanhedrin or the council. These are the ruling people. And this is the only encounter Jesus has with the Sanhedrin, this group of the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. 
where he's free. He'll, he'll meet them again, bound in a mock trial. But they're going to have a go at him here. And so they come up to him, and they ask a question. Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. So the question they're asking is, by what right have you done what you have done? Now, presumably, what they have in mind is probably the entering of Jerusalem, being heralded as king. Remember, the the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And then cleansing out the temple, and then just setting up camp. Jesus is not the student of any rabbi. He has no teaching credentials. And he is now just holding shop in the temple. Completely set aside what they were doing with these men. I mean, and the temple was large, and there were priests over the incense, and priests over the sacrifices, and priests over the... I mean, there's an entire structure here, and just drove them out, and he's just teaching all day long. And great crowds are there. And so their question is, what right do you have to do this? I want you to notice what they're not asking, or what they're not saying. Jesus didn't simply drive out those selling in the temple, did he? He cited biblical reference. In other words, he gave his argument. He cited Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11, when he said to them clearly, my house, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it the den of robbers. So, On a surface level, by what right, by what authority has Jesus done this? Well, by the right of the scriptures. Jesus, in other words, has made his clear indictment, his rebuke. Now, they can receive that rebuke or reject that rebuke. The answer should be, in some sense, obvious. You are violating scripture. God said, don't make my house a den of robbers. That's what you've done. But they, they don't praise Jesus for what he has done, nor do they condemn him for what he has done. They don't take a stance one way or the other. We, we think it was good of you to drive these people out. or No, how dare you? What they were doing was right and proper. They don't actually take a side on what he has done or even what he has taught. Their only issue is power, control. By what authority? Where is your license and your permit to do this? And that's the picture painted of them consistently in the Gospels. Remember in, in John chapter 1, they sent a delegation to John the Baptist, and all they wanted to know is by what rights John was doing a baptism. So the point here is they are not concerned with truth or with righteousness. They are not weighing in on the rightness or the wrongness of what Jesus has done. And they're not asking Jesus to weigh in on that. They neither praise nor condemn his clearing of the temple. They neither give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to his teaching in the temple. All they're concerned with is power and authority. By what right or who gave you this authority? That's all they're asking. And it's a trap. It's a trap. Point two, they're only seeking a cause to condemn Jesus. But they're really trying to do it becomes clear as this escalates in the trial it's just tell us plainly tell us plainly who you are we've been getting the hints and when jesus plainly tells them i'm the the son of god i'm the messiah they say that's it blasphemy kill him so they're not really coming going we're we're puzzled and we're wondering by what authority i mean who they're not real this is not a sincere question and jesus response to them unmasks their insincerity 
That's the whole point. These people are not puzzled. Okay? Because point three, his authority has been shown throughout his entire ministry. And Luke has highlighted that. Let me just give you a brief tracking of this. The word for, for authority sometimes is also translated as power. And it has the notion not of power of ability, but power of right. So immediately after being tempted in the wilderness in Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit or in the authority of the Spirit. And then in chapter 4.32, in his hometown, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And he casts out demons and the people were amazed. 4.36, what is this word? For with authority and power he has commanded the unclean spirits. Probably most notably in chapter 5, 24, remember Jesus was teaching and they lowered a man through the roof and Jesus said, seeing his faith, your sins are forgiven and they put their, who is this man who forgives sins? And Jesus said in Luke five twenty four, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So understand this. The entire point of Jesus' miracles was to demonstrate the authority he had. So that, that example of the man on the mat is perfect. Jesus did the greater miracle in forgiving his sins. The problem is it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Anyone can say that. And so Jesus says plainly, so that you will know The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I will work this miracle. The logic is simple. God is vindicating my authority to do what I do. Jesus' miracles, then, are the proof of his divine sanction. He has authority. His word has authority. The demons respond to his authority. Disease responds to his authority. Death responds to his authority as he raises not one but two people from the dead in Luke's gospel. And remember in Luke 8, 25, he calms the storm and his disciples say, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Jesus has been doing nothing but demonstrating his authority throughout his entire ministry in Luke's gospel. So when they come and say, by what authority? There's a certain disingenuousness a certain deceit. They know. They know. That's one of the reasons why they have to then start claiming his miracles are done by Satan. Because clearly he's got authority. Otherwise he couldn't do what he does. And not only does Jesus have this authority for himself, Jesus can delegate and gift this authority to others. In Luke 9, 1, he called together the 12 and gave them power and authority over demons to cure disease. So not only does Jesus have the authority, but he can grant the authority to whomever he wills. And then after sending out the 12 in chapter 10, 19, he gathers the 70 and he says to them, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So Jesus' authority in Luke's gospel has been abundantly, repeatedly shown in any and every domain, whether it be the natural world, whether it be moral evil and demons, whether it be sickness, whether it be death, and most notably in his teaching, which had authority. But they want to come to him and they say, by what authority? 
And, and one of the other things Luke is showing us here is how Jesus is absolutely in control. Uh, we mentioned this when we, when we looked at Palm Sunday at the triumphal entry. The events that take place in Jerusalem are not accidental. They're not unexpected. They're planned. Our Lord is absolutely in control. They come to him. A group of men. Okay? One man against a group of men. We've got the chief priests, plural, scribes, plural, elders, plural. So we've got a group of men in Jesus. I'll ask you a question. You'll notice Jesus actually does that a lot in his ministry. He comes, good teacher, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? What's your reading of the law? You know, and, and so Jesus regularly will answer a question with a question. And so here he asks them, this is now our second question, Jesus' counter question, from where is John's baptism? From heaven or from man? Likely Jesus said from heaven rather than from God because this group of men would have probably taken offense at him saying from God. So notice this. Jesus is going to take them head on, but he's not going to offend them unnecessarily. He's going to offend them with his point. He's not going to give them grounds to jump. Well, he said God from heaven or from man, which is to say, John's ministry, is it divinely sanctioned? Is he a true prophet? Was his message sanctioned, commissioned by God and a representation of what God thinks? Or is it his own thing? It's from man. You tell me. That's his question. Why, why pick John? I think of a couple reasons. One, John came with a baptism of repentance. That's what typified him. He was the one who was calling Israel to repentance in preparation for the Messiah. In John 1, Luke 3, 1 through 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Draconis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Albilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has just entered the temple and rebuked everything that is going on. There's an implicit call to repentance for those who are responsible for the state of the temple, which would be these men. Jesus has just driven them out. This is unacceptable. This is contrary to Scripture. Get out. So there's an awful similarity between what Jesus has just done in the temple and John the Baptist's ministry. Both are calling people to repentance. Secondly, John came in fulfillment of Scripture. So John, you could rightly evaluate. It's not as though you could say, well, how are we supposed to know? Um, John pointed to, and Jesus pointed to the Old Testament Scripture, probably most notable, anyone who knows Handel's Messiah knows this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and rough places plain. And so John is the forerunner, predicted by Scripture. You should be able to recognize who he is and what he is doing. Why also mention John? Well, because as they answer this question, if there is any honesty in them, if this is a genuine question, answering the question of John will help answer the question of Jesus because John himself testified to Jesus. Right? Remember Luke three fifteen through 17? 
as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. So John the Baptist regularly went on record saying, I'm not the Messiah, but he's coming. He's coming. And he baptized Jesus. And probably the greatest testimony to Jesus' identity was God the Father verbally speaking from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, saying clearly, A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So Jesus picks John. Because John similarly called people to repentance. Because John could be verified by scripture that he fulfilled. Because John himself testified to Jesus. But that would be if they were asking the question honestly. What Jesus is really doing is is getting them on the horns of a dilemma. Jesus knows the question's not honest. It's not sincere. So the leaders now have got a dilemma. And this is kind of comical if it weren't so sad. Group of men, plural scribes, plural priests, plural elders. And they got their plan. By what, by what authority, Jesus? Jesus, I want to ask you a question. John's baptism, from heaven or from man? This group of men now have to talk amongst themselves. You can picture them. Hold, hold on a sec, Jesus. We'll get right back to you. Give us a second over here. So what do you guys think? And that's what it said. Sometimes the text says they reasoned in their hearts. Here it's clear they took counsel together. They discussed it with one another. And this is comical. And remember, there's whole crowds in the temple watching this happen. Big, scary elders, chief priests, scribes. Jesus asks one question. He puts them in a, a tailspin. They get together. And they realize that Jesus has masterfully put them on the horns of a dilemma. They recognize it themselves. They take counsel saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So here's their dilemma. They, they have presumably two options. Jesus gives them, heaven or man. If they say from heaven, if they say, no, John was a prophet, his message was divinely sanctioned, he, his call of repentance to Israel in preparation for the Messiah was legitimate, well, then the obvious question is, if you think John's a real prophet, why didn't you heed his call? Right? So what's the implicit problem they face? If they answer from heaven, they will suffer shame. They will suffer shame, great shame. The people received John as a prophet. The leaders didn't. And the leaders now say, yeah, we, we, we goofed big on that one. Yeah, I know we didn't go out. I know we didn't back him. But now, now we realize he was a prophet. And so we repent of not recognizing him. And we, but he was a prophet. We recognize that now. Think of the great shame they would face if they had to humble themselves and recognize that John was a prophet. And Jesus could then call them on her, their hypocrisy. A great shame. And if they say from man, they will suffer harm. Because the people hold them to be a prophet. And so if, if they denounce him as a prophet, the people would likely see that as blasphemy. Kill them. So the horns of the dilemma. On the one hand, one answer brings great shame. The other answer brings great harm. What will they do? 
Again, notice, and Luke is trying to highlight here, not just our Lord's defeat of his enemies, but their wickedness, the corruption. What makes them so bad? What do they not discuss at all? What the truthful and honest answer is. There's no discussion of that. There's only the discussion of outcomes. Their first question of Jesus, by what authority? They're not weighing in. They don't care, ultimately, what he's doing. By what right? By what authority? Here, John's baptism from heaven, from man. No discussion of what the right answer is, what is true. So they come up with a third option. This group of wise, powerful, dignified leaders who love the best seats, they have to say to this Jewish carpenter, after getting the huddle, hold, give us a second, Jesus, hold on. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they effectively dodged shame in, in that answer. I wouldn't be very impressed if I were the crowd and these are the teachers of Israel. But I figure that's their best answer. And here I think we see clearly their wickedness and the corruption. Notice this. They view speech as a purely pragmatic tool. They view speech as a purely pragmatic tool. And here's what I mean. Pragmatism is the approach to life. It's only interested in what works, what gets results. A pragmatist doesn't care why, they care what. Will this pill make my, the inflammation go down? Then I don't care how it works. Will this... Will this approach, will this route get me there safely? That's all I care about. I care about the outcome. They're pragmatists. T today we've got versions of this, we call it relativism. I've got my truth, you've got your truth. I just care about what works for me and you've got what works for you. They're, they're, they're pragmatists. They view speech purely as a pragmatic tool. The, the, the whole category of what is true has flown out the window. This is, this is important to grasp, okay? There is a living God. And the living God is a talking God. And one of the things we've got to get is that God is the author of speech. And then he gifts man, made in his image, to follow and speak as God speaks. That's why our speech can be definitionally godly, because it models God or imitates God, or ungodly speech. And the living God who talks, whatever he says, always conforms to what is. It does it one of two ways. Sometimes when God speaks... What is simply conforms to what he says. So God can say, let there be light, and nothing hears, and nothing obeys, and there's light. And so what God says conforms to reality that way, because reality shifts, shifts and morphs. And other times when God sends prophets and he rebukes the people for their sin, in every instance, what God says and what is line up perfectly. Okay? That's the talking, living God. His word is truth. Jesus, John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Titus, it is impossible for God to lie. And then God gives this tremendous privilege and right to us, his creatures. And if we're to embrace our duty properly, when we speak, we have but two concerns. What is true? And how can it be said in a loving, gracious way? I understand that you and I, as, as God's creatures, as his image bearers, our speech really has two primary concerns. Will what I say line up with what is? Or will I speak the thing that is not? And will I say it in a way that gives grace? And, and I know we could break that down into more subtle categories, but I think in general, speaking the truth in love, that's it, right? 
And as we speak the truth in love, we, the church builds itself up. The nations are won to Christ. God is glorified. But these men have found another use for language, another use for speech. It becomes a tool to get them what they want. And Luke is highlighting the corruption and the wickedness of that. I want you to see it. It's ugly. It's, it's vile. They're so bought into this approach that truth for them, I don't know why they don't care about the truth, but they don't. They're not considering their answer based on any reflection on what is true. What will get me the best outcome? So we consider the first option, say from heaven, that gives that, oh, we don't like that outcome. We say it's from man, <laughs> we'll get stoned, we don't like that outcome. Okay, it's not very good, but I guess the best solution, the least bad option is we don't know, so we don't know. Um, it's wicked. And Jesus doesn't talk to people who talk like that. And, and, and you can take this same approach and you can dress it up in fine robes and you can call it post-structural linguistic theory. They do. And you can say, well, words don't really mean things. And each one of us has our own meaning that we construct from words. And so, and no, there's, there's all sorts of clever ways today that people do the same thing. So you ask a question like, what is marriage? We don't know. This is so complicated. I mean, we can tell you what different traditions think. We can tell you different approaches in historic theology. But language, this is difficult, tough stuff. Oh, yeah. Is this particular thing a sin? We, 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 we don't know. And, and individuals can do the same thing. Where we willfully are ignorant. And it's wicked. And it's corrupt. Now, I just want to take one moment further addressing this because this is most advanced in the church today under the subtle means of humility. And so what we're told is, if you think you know the answer to a question, if you think the Bible says something, you are arrogant if you say that. So you're free to say, you know, my truth, my reading, my understanding is that, and then whatever the topic is, whether it be sexual ethics or marriage or whatever, this is my understanding, this is my community's reading and group identity. But you dare not say, this is what it is, because that would be arrogant. And so it's humble to recognize your, your creatureliness. It's humble to recognize. And there's some truth there, which is why it gains traction. A lot of Christians get really, really, really uncomfortable saying things with any clarity. But I want to point something out to you that John Piper pointed out that was very helpful. We should be suspicious of a humility that when you press it far enough, goes like this. I'm so frail, so weak, sinful and fallen and broken that I couldn't possibly be so arrogant as to think that I understand with any certainty what my master wants of me. Therefore, I will do as I please. Let me understand. There's a certain, do, you, do you get the problem? I'll say that again. I'm so humble and I'm so weak and I'm so finite and frail, that I couldn't possibly be presumed to tell you what God has said. Therefore, I will do as I please. I don't think you parents are going to buy that with your kids when you say, hey, clean your room. And they say, well, I wasn't really sure what you meant <laughs> by clean. I mean, there's so many. What is clean, right? I mean, there's, there's cleaning. and So I, I, I just been playing some video games. It doesn't work. 
And even the people who write books, long books, about how language doesn't work, they miss the irony that they're using words in long books to explain. There's nothing new under the sun. People have been playing games with speech and words for as long as there have been people. And it's contemptible. It is wicked. It is vile. And Jesus will have nothing to do with it. So that's, that's out there in the sort of liberal academy. But we'll, before we finish our time, we'll try to look at it a little closer to home. So notice, these people are revealed that they are lying, self-condemned hypocrites. Lying, because they aren't even concerned with what they think is true. Self-condemned, because everyone knows they rejected John the Baptist, and hypocrites, because they present themselves as though they're searching for truth. They're presenting themselves as they're, they're actually interested in what is true. Tell us, we want to know by what authority you've done these things. They don't. They're self-condemned, lying hypocrites. So how does our Lord respond to such people? He refuses to answer. Jesus said to them, neither Will I tell you by what authority I do these things? Three things. One, Jesus responds in kind. Now, he doesn't lie, but he understands implicitly they're simply refusing to tell him what they think. In other words, he doesn't believe for a second they don't know because he says, neither will I tell you. What he's saying is, you didn't tell me what you think, so I'm not going to tell you what I think. He just won't lie in the process. Which is another rebuke. The crowd hears this. <laughs> Nobody's fooled. Nobody really believes they're confused. They're cowards. Jesus responds in kind. And it's a dangerous thing to come to God and ask for truth when you're not being honest with truth yourself. Uh, turn, turn to Ezekiel 14. We oftentimes talk about idols in the heart, but the only passage I'm aware of in the Bible that actually speaks of idols in the heart by name is Ezekiel 14. And whereas some of the examples of twisting language and speech that I spoke of a few minutes earlier, I, I don't think we're very likely to fall into those traps. I, I mention it so that you can see the folly when people with wise-sounding words, plausible arguments, PhDs, and academic seats behind them say these things. You can see the emperor has no clothes. But I think perhaps this might be more of our danger. Ezekiel 14. Remember, Ezekiel's out by the Kabar River in the Babylonian um, countryside with the, the first waves of captives. And they're, they're waiting to hear a word about Jerusalem. Will Jerusalem fall? Will it stand? And they come to God's prophet, and it looks good. They're respectful. They come to the right source. Then certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. So they sit. That's respectful. This looks good. Son of man. These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with a multitude of his idols that may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged through their idols. In other words, don't come to God in pretense asking questions you don't really want answers to. He doesn't like it. 
He gets mad. You read further. He says, I will, look at verse 7 and 8. I will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of the people. So the picture is this. You're not really a God worshiper. You're not really interested in truth. You're worshiping other things, and yet you come to God, you come to his word, and you want answers. You know, what about the Amalekites? What about the flood? God doesn't answer people like that. And if he does, they don't generally like it. Or for us, coming, looking for help, looking for the answers when we're not really worshiping and serving God. Jesus responds in kind, point two, Jesus doesn't talk to people who treat truth this way. He doesn't talk to them. I don't talk to people like you, Jesus says. I don't talk to people like you. All of the problems on the earth began with a simple question. Did God really say? Maybe Eve, maybe the serpent could have approached it. Can you really know what God meant when he said, don't eat? And people that treat language that way, instead of, and again, get, get back to this. You and I have the choice. We can be creatures. We can respect and recognize our responsibility to say what is. The words that come out of my mouth must conform to what is. They must represent what is, and they must be done in a gracious and loving way. Those are my only two concerns. And yet, and I think this is maybe where it hits closer to home with us, we, we can take the same strategy of these leaders. We've seen how ugly it is. We've seen how vile it is. We've seen how repulsive and cowardly it is. And we've seen that our Lord simply says, I don't, I, I don't talk. God doesn't talk to people that use language like that. But in my own heart, I, I know I do do this. I get caught in, in some situation. My wife asked me a question. Hey, why, why didn't you do this or whatever? And when my heart and my mind does not go to, how can I tell my wife what is true in a way that is gracious? But instead, I think of damage control. How can, oh, you've done this too. Okay, good. <laughs> what answer can I give that isn't an outright lie that puts me in the best position? When I do that, I am doing exactly what these despicable, wicked men are doing. And when you do that, you're doing the same thing. And God doesn't talk to people who talk like that. So Luke shows us how ugly it is. He shows us on the big screen how despicable it is, how wicked it is, and how much contempt our Lord has for this. Fools nobody. And be careful lest we on the small scale do the same exact thing. Words are not your tools to get what you want you are the servant of words. You serve a living God who talks, and your speech he requires to model after his speech. You are a servant of the truth. You don't create truth. That's another way of looking at this. When we lie, when we treat language this way, we're acting like God. We want to take control of the story. We want to be the author of the story. We want to create a reality. It's false, but we want to create a reality that conforms to our words Jesus doesn't talk to people who treat truth this way, and we ought not to treat truth this way as well. 
And if we're honest, and if I'm honest, I, I do this. We do this. Finally, Jesus will give a clear answer to this question later. Turn to Luke 22. I'm going to call the worship team up as we get ready for our final song. I just want to make this last point and we'll sing. Jesus isn't dodging the question. He will give a clear answer to this question. And it will be the cause of his death. Luke 22, 69 to 71. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said to him, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from our own lips. And they crucify him. For our Lord, this isn't cowardice in our Lord. He is unmasking their hypocrisy. Our Lord defeats his enemies. He is righteous. The, the righteous are as bold as a lion. And the wicked have little Bible conferences together to try to figure out how to answer questions. So let us exult in our Savior and let us commit that our speech will be righteous and godly. Let's sing our final song, All Glory Be... No, not our... No. Ravaco, my speech did not just accord to what is. Our final song is our new song, Not In Me. Please stand.